0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Amplify Her podcast. I am your host, Christina Singh, and the Amplify Her podcast is all about amplifying and uplifting women's voices and stories. As you may be able to tell, I am under the weather this week, so I'm going to keep this intro quick, which I think is best because my guest this week is John Sue, a comedian who resides in New York City, but is an incredibly worldly individual. She and I got to sit down and chat all about her journey um, around comedy. We talk about building community, finding your audience, using your voice for social justice. This episode is just jam-packed with so much goodness. And I do wanna mention um, that John Sue runs a show in New York City called The Femmes of Color Comedy. Uh, or Fuck It Up comedy show, FOC. And their next show is on February 16th at the Soho Playhouse. So go and check it out if you are in New York City and available to go and see um, all of these incredible comedians. So let's not waste any more time. Let's dive into this episode with John Sue. Enjoy. It is so, so good. And um, I will see you on Friday for a new solo episode of the show. Bye.
1: Jansu, welcome to the Amplify Her podcast. I am so thrilled to have you. You and I connected online, um, and I know that we do not know each other at all, (laughs) and that we connected um, through Instagram, and you're a comedian, and I am just so grateful to have you on the show today to talk about your story, so thank you for being here. Thank you for
2: having me. It's such a pleasure to be here and to connect with you as well. I appreciate you reaching out.
1: So I noticed, um, so I reached out to the Femmes of Color comedy uh, page on Instagram because I really loved that you guys were representing people of color, women of color on that page in comedy. And I have recently interviewed love of my life gracie kanan on the show and um i found your page through through her and that interview and i started following you guys and and i connected with you so can you tell me how you're connected with that page and then we can like dive into your comedy journey and what you're doing
2: yeah, absolutely. Well, so uh, Femmes of Color is uh, it's a bit older than the New York branch. It started out in London in 2018. And I, I I lived out in the UK for quite a while. That's where I did comedy. And when when I first did a Femmes of Color show out there, it was through someone else that ran it. It was Kima Bob who started it in London. And I did this show, and I remember thinking, this is my audience. These are the people I want to talk to. They understand me, and they're with it, and it's a femmes of color-only audience. And people who come to the show are people that care, that want to be represented, that want to hear our stories. And then a year and a half ago, when I moved to New York, I realized there wasn't really a lot of that here, in spite of being a very diverse um, city and having a lot of th- voices around, those weren't really represented in comedy. So I decided with Kima Bob that I would start the New York City branch of Fuck, Fuck It Up.
1: And Yes, how- we have that's- to be very clear. That's the name of the show. <laughs> Fuck It Up, femmes of color. I love it. So, okay. So let's backtrack a bit. So now we know how you're connected to that page. So how long have you been in the world of comedy, doing comedy? How did that find you right I've been doing comedy for over seven years now wow
2: Um, and I first before then I was doing public speaking I it it ties back to my upbringing so I have to I'll give you the short version of that you can give me the long too it's totally fine (laughs) I'm I'm of Middle Eastern background um, Kurdish and for for those of those of your listeners that don't know it's an um, historically persecuted group in the Middle East so um, it comes with a need to talk and a need to express, I think, having such a, you know, had such a strong history. And I grew up in Denmark, the whitest of all places. And growing up, I uh, was exposed to a lot of racism, a lot of just daily hate speech all over. And when I was 18, 19, I decided to join this core of public speakers that would try to bridge the, the build a bridge between the minorities in the country and the majority so you go out to these events workshops where you sort of tell your personal story and try to connect with mostly far-right people around around you in in that space and you know hoping that someday you would fix racism you know and um that obviously doesn't happen Mm. didn't happen in Denmark it hasn't happened elsewhere I'm Mm. not saying dialogue shouldn't be prioritized it absolutely should but uh, my experience was sort of very discouraging mostly at times very rewarding but I did that for four years and then I left Denmark to go study abroad and I never actually went back so it's been like 10 years since I left Denmark and I lived in, in California in Portugal in the UK and then finally I moved here but when i moved to the uk i by chance got into comedy it was a very random thing i um i was i joined this i joined this group of people that wanted to increase um the numbers of women in comedy and i um a friend of mine wanted to go and i thought okay i'll join too i mean i love comedy so i went and i realized that all that public speaking training i had done for 4 years really came in handy because every time I stood (laughs) up and I said something people would laugh at it and always having been like the family's uh clown and the class clown it it felt natural and I realized that in my public speaking I had relied on humor to break the tension because I would tell um, I would sort of tell a heartfelt story uh and I would break that tension with laughter so it actually was comedy it was just storytelling and um And that just, once I went, did that comedy workshop, I realized how easy that, that came to me and how good it felt to make people laugh, tell something personal about yourself. But instead of pandering to the audience and needing the audience to be, to like you the way that you would as a personal public speaker, this was very freeing. And yeah, that's, that's how it started.
1: Oh my gosh, what a beautiful story. And I think that what's so interesting about what you said was it came easy to you after your experience with public speaking, um, which seemed to be, as you said, you didn't have the best experience. There were moments, but I would assume going into a subject matter such as you know, being uh, discriminated against and facing racism can be often fearful when you're going into an environment where you're going to be very outspoken and and trying to have more dialogue around that when you were entering into that particular place uh, in that chapter in your life were you fearful or were you hopeful like how were you feeling when you were first going into that because i know you mentioned you were already quite outspoken right i i was i was um
2: fearful um but also i was both i, I hoped I hope for a better Denmark. Essentially, that's what I believed in it, and I wanted to create that space for myself to live in, until I realized that that wasn't gonna change, and I decided to just leave the country. But back then, I I was idealistic about it, and while and I put my fears behind, and and you know the the team was so supportive. This there were like forty people in this core, and um, there was a lot of sharing and a lot of support in that group Um, so it helped when we went into these workshops even though we knew that most of the people in the audience would probably disagree with us we and we got all sorts of comments from people like oh you might be okay but we all know the rest of you are not like that or you know if you're going to complain about Denmark then just go back to where you came from you know these kinds of this kind of stuff will be just be said out loud and uh, there's this a very strong sense of free speech in Denmark that often goes into hate speech. Uh, Very unfortunate because the intention around it is obviously great. Everyone should be able to say whatever they want. But then what ends up happening is um, it's the minorities that often suffer.
1: Right. And I think what's so interesting is you're using your voice to bridge a gap, to um, build dialogue and using that free speech and that voice to to be that person to open up space for that mm-hmm. and i find that so often um the minorities in question are the ones who are opening up that dialogue and and the ones who are bridging the gap and and opening up a space for conversation and i think you're really touching on something that's very needed which is as we all obviously no, for the people who are not minorities to be the ones to open the dialogue, to do the research, to start to do um more of the, the opening of those spaces and having those conversations. And I think it's really so powerful to hear from your experience that you put yourself out there in a vulnerable way. Um, you learned so many skills from that, uh, were disappointed and were faced with things that you didn't want to hear or see or face and for yourself you stepped away from that but i think it's really powerful that you put yourself in front of people in that way and had those conversations because i think a lot of people might think like oh nah, i don't want to do that <laughs> like i don't want to put myself did you have people in your life that were like that that didn't want to engage in in that side of the conversation that you were you were you know invoking absolutely i had friends in from high
2: school and, and college that would question this work I was doing. They would say, why, why do you have to have this conversation? Why do you think that's going to change anything? They're always going to hate us. They're never going to change. And and my my reasoning was always, well, we can only try, right? This is our country. We have to make them accept us here. And if I have to go from city to city, spend my spend my um free time doing this, then I will. Um and I also get where all those people come from. It's hard standing up like that and it has to be raw, right? It has to be honest. You can't have a dialogue with people if you're not being truly honest. Right. You can't it can't be a front. It can't be an act. It has to be your personal story. Somehow you have to, to emote in a way that people, you know, feel it. And there were people that felt it. There were people that would tear up. There were people that would say, I'm so sorry you went through that. That must have been horrible. But then most of the time it wasn't that. Yeah. So so yeah, I, I don't blame any, anyone for not wanting to do it. Because why is it our responsibility to explain to people why they shouldn't hate us? And I think right. once that idealism, once I spent years of of doing this work, I kind of came to that same place it trained me it taught me a lot and I think it taught me something about society that was really valuable um and I now just have sort of used that and use I now use it in comedy. it's very right. much the same topics I touch on but I like the empowering part about standing on a stage demanding that people listen to me and then I and no matter what I say no matter how offended someone in the audience is, about me being just proudly brown and outspoken about my experience they they won't get up and leave because they paid the ticket whereas right. you know whereas on, on the other on the other side when i was walking into their space i was asking them to listen
1: yes and i think what's you know i think what's so interesting is when you experience trauma um there is I I guess there is this trope around comedy that all comedians have gone through incredibly traumatic experiences or have traumatic experiences in their life that they like dig up and like put out there and laugh at. And I've seen online recently, actually, a lot of people talking about how when they're talking about a traumatic experience that they've gone through and look around the room for the laugh and people aren't laughing and they're like, (laughs) uh... (laughs) That's horrible. And I think what's so beautiful about comedy is, like you just said, people paid a ticket to come and sit. And listen to your stories and your storytelling and to find those moments in your comedy. So going to this journey where you've come out of this very tense environment, you've gone into now this environment where you're discovering comedy and how you could step into it with a bit more ease and and get up on stage. What was that experience like when you stood up on stage and started talking about your stories? It was very freeing because
2: there was that element of not needing people to accept it. It was just, this is my perspective. This is what I have been through. Because I'm not lecturing people. I'm not asking them to be my friend or to think differently about me. I'm just telling them a funny story. And I remember uh, telling the stories about when I was a dialogue ambassador. Um, That was one of the first bits I told in the UK when I got into comedy. And how um, you know I told someone, someone while I was doing dialogue work, told me um, that Muslims are the reason we have so much crime and violence in Denmark. And and I was like, what crime and violence? It's Denmark, you know. Did someone steal your bike? That was like sort of the the tag of this thing. And people in the UK who are very familiar with Denmark being this socialist haven and and you know uh, just incredibly safe place to live. Found that amusing, so I'm um, something that was very trivial. It was, it was a real thing, and I could tell it in that kind of ridiculous way and elicit a laughter. And I remember loving that feeling of just being able to say what I was actually feeling instead of trying to protect people's
1: um, egos. Right, because I think what you're also talking about is an acknowledgement of your experience and an yeah. acknowledgement of racism of the Mm -hmm. fact that this happened and how inflated someone's reaction is to this and how racist their reaction is. And so I think like that validation is that key piece that I find in what you're talking about. Like, oh yes, finally people are validating what I am experiencing and what I have experienced. Is that Mm -hmm. something that You found through this work?
2: Yeah, that's a
1: very interesting
2: point. I've never quite thought about it that way, but I guess it is, yeah, it is validating, especially in spaces like the fuck it up space where people share your experience and they understand where you're coming from. In those cases, it's absolutely validating and it's community building. In other spaces and more white audiences, when the audience is with you and they're laughing at the stuff that you're telling and it's a white only audience, that's again validating because um, there's something they
1: recognize in that. that right. Happens. You're saying, look, see, you know, it's happening. Yeah. Exactly. You're like, all of you are laughing because you know, it's real. You
2: it's, can't laugh if you don't recognize it. Right. It was, you'd be like, I, I don't understand this. Like, I
1: don't Exactly. Get it. You wouldn't get the joke right. <laughs> unless you acknowledge that what you're talking about is real. And so I think that's so, uh, phenomenal that you know that's the beauty of comedy that you can go into a space and call people out on all the bullshit that we're going through every single day and that we all pretend is not really there but it's totally there depending on who you are and where you are in your life and then someone could say something and you laugh at it because you know it's real so, when you started going into these spaces, like you said, where there were women of color, people of color in the audience that were that were the primary audience, how was that a shift for you? I think it
2: really uh convinced me of my of of there being an audience for me.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I think some comics most comics probably think that they need to make every room laugh and they that's the mark of a good comic and I do think that to be true to some extent but for me the motivation is not just to make every room laugh is to talk to my audience is to actually say something not just something funny but something that's that we understand and you know build that community around it so finding these POC audiences that understood me and you know shared that experience was just so it's just beautiful to be in that space so it kind of made me realize that those are the people I want to talk to those are the people I want to tour for I want to you know
1: become a bit of comic for so now what does your career look like
2: Hmm. well I left the UK which is where I was doing comedy for six years and after moving to New York obviously you know setting up getting into this space is challenging there are 5,000 comedians in New York City and um that well that was a challenge but I'm I'm kind of a um this hustle culture in New York actually fits in very well with my own personality (laughs) because it's very fast going and that's how I am it's very
0: motivating
2: it's very (laughs) motivating and I'm someone who I always work hard and I think I always I I sort of don't have that off button so it it did mean that I could just really push hard and get to a place where I can run my own show and I could establish connections and people um see me as a comic here and they appreciate the, the voice that I have and I think now this it's now been a little over a year since I've actually done, done my first show here. And I produced multiple shows. I have shows almost every single night. I have been in New York Comedy Festival. I feel like the journey has been been great to me. It's been yeah. nice. And um, yeah, I
1: appreciate it. I, I appreciate where I am. Yeah, that's really beautiful because I think something that um, is such a gorgeous thread is your voice and using your voice in these ways. Um, Because I know that now you're, you're producing spaces that other people can come to and use their voice. So can you talk about that particular piece of not just being on stage, but producing shows and having space? for other people to fill a lineup so they can use their voices and and um talk to their audiences too.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I one thing that became very evident to me when I got here is that this is this place is incredibly cutthroat. Um while you make so many friends in comedy, it's it's a very insular experience ultimately. Um cuz everyone is sort of competing against everyone. Um but I what I found was lacking was that community amongst um POC POCs and specifically um femmes of color in the space because there aren't that many of us um and we're often pitted against each other because there can only be one person on a lineup and I knew from my time in the UK that that didn't need to be the case Mm. so um and the friends I made in comedy right away were femmes of color those are the people that I gravitated towards and and then I I realized that I just wanted to have all these incredible comedians on the lineup, and showcase them. You know the way that I had been showcased in the UK. So um, after agreeing with Keema Bob that I would take the reins here, I sort of um yeah contacted venues, and there were people that believed in 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 the goal of this project, and then comedians yeah the the comics that came on the show all had such a good time and I think it was so it was so beautiful to see people experience that incredible fuck it up audience the people that are there just to support these themes of color so it's a loving caring audience it's super diverse and um it's a, just a good time and I think everyone all the all the films we had on the show all appreciated that that was a unique experience, I think.
1: Yeah. Oh my gosh. Even just you talking about it, I'm like so excited (laughs) as you're talking about it. And I really want to go back to your experience in the UK and bridge that gap, because I think it's really beautiful that you had a space to walk on stage and um, find your audience. So What did you now notice now that you're in New York when you're the person running the show and you're producing it and you're um, allowing space? What do you notice in these comics that are coming on and doing these sets? How are they evolving? That's so interesting. I think um,
2: generally I feel that everyone knows that this is a, a supporting space. This is a space that's created for them and they can say stuff that might make a regular audience upset, but not this one. I mean, we have a, it's, it's the space for us to talk about stuff that might upset gatekeepers of comedy, which are often white men. So I think that I find that I can see that to be liberating and I can see that that's not a, I can see that, that it's a unique experience for people that come on. Um, and obviously not every show is the same, right? So some shows are better than others. And but generally I have I have noticed that in other comics too, that you know, that freeing experience of just being able to say, talk about the things that you want to talk about.
1: Yeah. And was it that same way in the UK as well? Like how how big are these audiences when when you were first going on stage?
2: Yeah, in the UK, it's quite successful now. So we're just trying to build that up to the same level here. But in the UK, when I first went out, might have been maybe 50, 60 people in an audience. And you go up on stage and what you notice immediately is that your your most socially critical jokes are the ones that get the best response. and that is so liberating because those are, jokes are usually the ones you worry about with a regular you know majority white audience because people might be upset with you. people might uh, heckle you instead but these audiences don't they they laugh and they support and they like they agree which you often see through like applause breaks and stuff
1: like that. <laughs> yeah. It's I like- I love that so much because I, I agree and it's similar. Like you said, everyone is looking for their audience and obviously you were saying there's this big goal to have a broader audience that you can appeal to everyone. But I don't, I think that is true for some comics, but only a handful really. And I think the value of that message that you're saying around finding your community and finding your audience is so important because I think what a lot of people hear is, or maybe the message that they're playing in their own brains is there are already people doing what I'm doing. Or there are already people having conversations about what I'm having. There are already people that are consuming content similar to what I'm putting out there. And what has been your experience as far as those thoughts? Like, do you have those thoughts? Like, have you thought about that before, especially being in this space? Like you said, when you got to New York, there's 5,000 comics. It's a hustle culture, but you're space is more narrow have you had those thoughts
2: what i have found and what i've loved about fuck it up specifically is that everyone has such a unique story and and that that's it's it it strikes me that on a lineup with six women of color that every single story is so unique, is told so differently. There's no overlap. Maybe there's a an overlapping theme there. You might you might think that there's an overlapping theme, but there isn't. And that's something that it's it's made me feel very comfortable confident that there is a world out there for my specific voice. Yeah. Because, you know, even though people do put us in a box and they think that we all uh you know across this range of color that we all have the same story but that obviously isn't true and I think fuck it up is an example of that. Um I don't
1: know if that answers your question. No, it totally does because I think there are there is that messaging that we're getting constantly, especially around women of color. Like there you're there are these stereotypes this um, message that you can only tell specific jokes or you can only have a specific story or yeah, we we get it. We've heard this story before. Mm-hmm. But I think what you're saying is no, everyone has their own story. It's really unique. You really don't know what's going to happen on that stage until you're in front of this lineup and you hear it. Yeah. And I love that that is the case because of course. Like it's obviously it's, like, it's so obvious, but I think we've just been so fucking conditioned to think that that's not the case yeah. and that it's all going to be the same and there's not enough room. Meanwhile, there's groups of people going on stage and, you know, talking about the same things in different ways that, you know, are white men and it's consumed um and praised. So I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense and is great. It's amazing. <laughs> I have had multiple
2: people in this whole year that I've done so Fuck It Up has been running here since April and I've had multiple people tell me that this was the best comedy show they've ever been to. And that's in a place like New York City just 200 meters away from from the comedy cellar. And I think that says that speaks volumes because People see the diversity in that lineup. They see how every single woman on that stage is so talented because they have to be, you know, we're fighting against so much more, you know, when, when a woman of color is bad on a show, then it's like, oh, okay, well, they are bad. That's what we thought. We just wanted it to be diverse, you know? So that just means I, I, my experience is that the people that I book are just exceptional.
1: Oh, I love that so much. Yeah.
2: And and of course, there's, this is a supporting space, supportive space. So occasionally um, I tend to, for every show, also book a very young comic who's only, you know, new, who's new to comedy, maybe a year or two, just so that they can have the experience of a very supportive space that could allow them to grow. Um, So that's always, so generally it's like stellar comics and one or two newer comics because it, ha- it has, we have to support each other.
1: Yeah, of course. How do you find people to book for your shows? Obviously, there are a lot of people out there that, you know, are going to come on your lineup, but how are you finding people? Well,
2: I perform a lot myself. So um, I see other people at shows and then occasionally I might reach out um, to some of, the, some of the people I know who also produce shows and ask them uh, for recommendations. That's yeah. something that I've done on multiple occasions especially if I want it to be as diverse as possible. Um, you know, we, there is a thing that um, there aren't as many East Asian comics, for instance. So that's always a, a priority to find an East Asian comic to put on a lineup because there might be audience members that want to be seen and, and you know, represented on that stage. Having, you know, queer comics is is very important, queer um People, comics of color, um, and yeah, in in the same way, you know, yeah. So yeah, recommendations. So. <laughs> no, but I love that it went a bit quicker than my mouth. So <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, perfect. Well, I know this isn't your your first go at producing um, mm-hmm. shows because I I know I've read that you did um, Laugh for Change or Laughter for Change, um, and. Can you speak a little bit more about that particular show and its evolution? Absolutely. Life of Changes, uh, it, that was my baby
2: project. That was the one that I, whew, I spent so much time pouring over. Um, 2017, I went to uh, refugee camps in Greece because the Syrian refugees were coming into Europe and they were all stuck in those, sorry, 20... 2016 17 yeah early 2017 and um, the people were stuck at the camps and there was just literally no and not enough manual labor so a group of us went down to help in these camps and I was so shocked by the conditions that I saw people live in that when I went back to the UK I felt like I had to do something and organized the comedy show the first one was simply because there weren't enough shoes for these kids who were walking around in the cold because you know when they're when they're brought over with these um plastic boats the the, the smugglers tell them just throw out all your clothes because when you get to Greece you're basically promised all this all these you know, a place to stay, people that will help you clothes all of it which is just lies but then people come and they find that oh there aren't even shoes for their kids so um that was just something that I I struggled with so much after returning to the UK like after spending weeks in the camps and um so raising money for for shoes was a priority and the person who had organized that workshop that I had joined, for comedy she i was talking to her about it and she said yeah why don't we just do a comedy show and raise money through that so we had a just giving page and we did this first comedy show people poured into the show we sold out raised i think around 2000 pounds at that show and were able to buy a lot of shoes from a local vendor that were then distributed at the camps wow and that that was the first one and because I was still working with the organizations out there. I was still having like a closer relationship to them. I just started organizing show after show. And at first it was just me. The first year I wanted, I called it Laugh for Change. um, And it was entirely nonprofit built around just raising money. So that was every single show. And by 2019, I had a team of more than 20 people, all who believed in this, in the in what we were doing and there were we started out at University of Cambridge because that's where I was a student and then we by, by 2019 by 2020 actually by the pandemic we were at 10 different universities doing comedy shows uh, unfortunately the pandemic destroyed our operation entirely by the time um, we were able to do live shows again I was actually out I had already left the UK so when I came to the U.S., I thought, you know what, there are students here. There are societies here. There are people here that also care. And I teamed up with Amnesty International at Columbia University, their student society. And we had two comedy shows at New York Comedy Club, which was for the same purpose. So that was great. It's still, it still needs to be nurtured here, The, yeah. the style, just the concept of putting on a comedy show for nonprofit in a in a very um, self-serving place like New York or the U.S., I think it's, it's a bit difficult. Um, yeah. yeah, but I think as I'm getting to know the people and the land, like how the how people operate here, things will get easier.
1: Yeah. Oh my gosh, what a what a beautiful way to utilize your resources and to give to a community. Uh, Because I think many people may not know um, what to do when they see something like that, or they might look at that and and want to help, but maybe don't know the ways to make that happen. Um, You know, I myself work for an organization and for a population where I see a lot of you know, people who don't know what to do or what to help, and they just want to create change or give. And I think it can be really powerful when you mobilize and you take your own action. I think it's a real testament to your character um, when you're taking action like that, because it's it's very different to. It's so impactful to cut a check and send it to someone, but it's so, so impactful to create awareness and create advocacy and because that's education, right? And it's helping people to better understand something on a deeper level than simply making a donation, um, which are incredibly important, but it's the changing of the mind. Like we we're talking about at the top of this show, that is gonna be the thing that makes the deepest impact. Sorry. It's really beautiful to see this um thread of social change and um advocacy in your story on every level. Um, because I can definitely see that from you know, your time in public speaking, then moving into comedy, producing shows, advocating for these populations, and then setting up uh, a show here um, to feature a specific audience and, and comedians for a specific audience as well. Has that always been a part of your upbringing? How I mean, we talked about your your upbringing and, and your desire to speak more publicly, but has that been a part of you since you were young?
2: I think so. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I I grew up um, with this Kurdish identity and given that, you know, I was told very young that we couldn't, when we went to Turkey... We couldn't say that we were Kurdish because that was illegal. We couldn't speak Kurdish because that was illegal. My name is a Turkish name because Kurdish names were illegal. So having that, you know, so ingrained in your identity, I think, builds this need to fight and and just, yeah, standing up against, Oppression, I think, and growing up in a space where there is free speech and you should be outspoken and you should criticize government—that is one thing I'd say about Denmark. That that is something they're good at. They are very critical and they don't believe in. They're not incredibly in the the majority of the population. I would say is centrist. They're not very partisan, and I think it it allows for for people like myself to actually discover their voice Mm. Um, when i was 12 years old my family moved from um i grew up in the inner city where there was a lot of where it was like mainly just poc community diasporas um and then we moved to the suburbs and i went to going i went from going being at a a majority poc school to a majority white school and that was my first experience of actually identifying microaggressions and and um, um problematic language and you know, being other, that was the first real experience I had. And at first I, I, I wasn't grappling with it. I didn't understand it, but it was also around the same time I discovered the the Black civil rights movement. It was, it was because I was always a big reader. So I somehow stumbled upon this movement in, in this country across the globe and it fueled the, the, the Kurdish, you know, rebel in me, the one who had to speak up and, and believed in, you know, in community building and, and, you know, self-sufficiency and, and, um and, you know, like just standing up against and standing up for what you believe in. So yeah. that was uh, the end of my primary education before high school was basically just me fighting with my teachers all the time because they would use a lot of problematic language and I would just call it out so I think that's really where it started and then when I went to high school uh, I ended up joining um, student bodies and I was always just treated as that minority rep Um, and that in itself means that you just have to speak for the people right that um, you're you're not really repping but you are because that's why they brought you in
1: But isn't it so interesting that you have always, always had a strong voice, like, and then you're centered in a position where you are using your voice in a very strong way? Like, I think it's really so phenomenal that even through these adverse moments, you're centered in your voice, and you're and you've identified that that's powerful for you, because throughout what you're you're talking to me about are really, really horrible fucking things, you know, like not being able to speak your language, use your name, identify who you are. Obviously you're going to want to shout it from the rooftops. (laughs) Like, obviously you're going to want to speak and say who you are and identify strongly with who you are. Maybe not so obviously for, for some others, but to me, you know, in the short time that I've gotten to know you, it just seems really like just so obvious that you would use your power for those things. And it makes a lot of sense that when you started reading more and and questioning that it would snowball and mm-hmm. keep going. And you know, there have been so many moments in my life where I can really relate to what you're saying about being positioned in a space where you're the sole minority or that like representative in a in a way that you like never asked for. And um and like using your voice in a in a way that can be really confusing. Um, and you're you're having to answer questions that you you don't even want to address in the first place. Uh, I think it's really powerful that you've then turned that into, okay, so you want me to be that person. Um, I'm going to find my power and do it in my way and have it uh, come through, have my voice shine and my goal shine in a way that's really intentional. So I really commend you for using your voice in that way. When um, when being uh, faced with a lot of uh, situations that would naturally piss people off. <laughs> so I'm curious how your family um, reacts to, um, don't worry about Brooklyn in the background always. Um, <laughs> I'm curious how your family has responded to, number one, your outspokenness, and then also your career in comedy. Uh, Yeah, that's actually interesting because
2: the comedy, they don't quite know the extent to which I do it. If I'm being totally honest, my family, you know, they're Kurdish immigrants living in Denmark. I talk to them every few days, but I've been away for a long time and I don't think they understand what this passion for comedy is because they won't understand my comedy anyway, which sometimes I'm very thankful for because (laughs) I talk about my parents and I do talk about dating and things that they probably would not be very happy about um and because of that because I also have a a daytime career uh there's the evening career and there's a the day career yeah. and those are those are I actually prioritize them I would say equally so I am a neuroscientist by day and that's the one I feel they should know about um whereas the the evening one is my own passion project and um in terms of in terms of how they dealt with my outspokenness obviously that didn't go very well when i was growing up because um i was the only daughter in my in my home i had three brothers and my my family in denmark is very conservative um So obviously, like a lot of this is probably common knowledge. This is, I would say, common knowledge that when immigrants leave their country and they move to these Western spaces, they hold on to what was stronger than the people back home. So my people, back my family back home in Turkey are very liberal and, you know, they're quite progressive, whereas my family in Denmark is incredibly conservative. Uh, So growing up, I was... um, my this is mostly my, my mom's family in Denmark and they were um kind of against me pursuing higher education against me um being so out and about not my my, my parents but my my relatives because I was apparently by being highly by wanting to be educated just setting a bad example. And this is not this is in no way like all Kurdish people. This is just my family. um And I was lucky enough that my my dad was always quite different from the other people in my family. He had been raised in a village in Turkey. His family relocated to a big city so that he could go to university. So he was the first in his family to go to university. But then he met my mom and he left Den- Turkey to come to Denmark and then spend the rest of his life as a cab driver in Denmark. So when I was growing up, he saw that I think that need that that drive and he encouraged it a lot whereas the rest of my family did not but uh, given that it is incredibly patriarchal that actually worked for my to my advantage which yeah which is uh, all of these things are just so complex and they just mess with your mind but I know that I had my dad's support meant that I could sort of pursue what I wanted to pursue um and because he's also quite politically inclined I think he uh um, understood the drive to, to, to say, and to stand up against the Danish, the, 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 the issues in Danish society. He didn't quite understand the need to stand up against the patriarchy in my family and, and, you know, the, the sexism that I don't think he could relate to, but that brought a lot of issues between me and my mom, because I I w I didn't like the the gender norms that were imposed on me and and um and you know the 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 conservative mindset by which i was i was raised because that didn't align well with this um this world that i wanted to live in especially given that conservative uh, middle eastern values are, are very different from the socialist danish values and for all its flaws with with minorities and and racism they do that thing really well where they actually um have you know is a far more egalitarian society so uh that, that was difficult to grapple with these two different worlds and i think there were times where my family definitely did not appreciate that voice that i had gotten in school or in like outside world, because I would use it against them as well.
1: (laughs) No, I really appreciate you sharing that because it's such a important insight, that distinction of, um, that classism and racism versus the sexism piece, like you were encouraged to pursue very specific things that your father was up against. Um, but the sexism piece wasn't really at play for him, So that's not, that's an unseen. Yeah. And um, I think that is very interesting. um, I can definitely relate. And I think it's fascinating, um, that piece of, an immigrant family moving into a new country, a new space, a Westernized space and being incredibly conservative. Well, family back home is not as conservative. I definitely have that, um, those, those pieces in my family as well. And so I, I can really relate to a lot of what you're saying and, But also what a gift that your father was encouraging of those pieces, um, like you were saying, and you could pursue these different avenues and step into spaces where you're using your voice, step into rooms now where you're being funny and, um, you know, making people laugh from your experiences and then step into a new space where you're opening doors for other people to come in and take those maybe similar, maybe completely absolutely different stories and step on a stage and talk to people how has this particular journey of comedy changed your life and how you view yourself um it's been very empowering it's
2: knowing that i can stand on a stage and have people pay attention to to me and listen whether they want or not to see someone like me on a stage they they have to and i think that's been very empowering being able to talk about anything that I, I i want to talk about it's um it's it's not something i take for granted because it's it doesn't it's not given to us easily and it takes a lot of work to to get to a point where you can actually that people respect you enough to put you on that stage um and, I that's also why I have this strong sense of using it for something, because it's not it's a privilege to to be there. Um, I I don't take it lightly. I don't treat it the way I see other people treat it. I don't I don't complain about shows. I don't when I'm when I'm when I have when the audience doesn't, when when it's a tight audience. I don't talk shit about the audience. I just wanna do better. I. And I think that's something that I can see, I can see myself treating it differently from some people I see around. And I think that comes from the fact that I feel so privileged to be able to do that. You know, we are, you know, being, being from a, coming from a land where we can't, I can't speak up and seeing the, the revolution in Iran with women or how women are treated. I think it's all the more, um reason to be to be proud of where I am right now and being able to do what I do. So um yeah that's definitely yeah. So uh yeah. I don't know if that answered your question. Sometimes I just yeah. ramble.
1: No, you are not rambling. You are <laughs> incredibly intelligent and concise and um very meaningful with your words. So I I really appreciate I can't I our time flew by, and I really appreciate your your time today and and coming on here and talking about your journey and your intention and um, finding your voice. I'm I'm really grateful. So I really want to go to a fuck it up show. And if other people want to, where can they go to a fuck it up show? Yes. So the
2: next show we have is on February 16, 9 p.m. at Soho Playhouse. It's gonna be an incredible audience. It's our first show of, of twenty twenty three, so uh, I really pulled out the big the big guns, and it's gonna be amazing. Um, tickets are online at the Soho Playhouse webpage. You can use promo code, fuck F O C, um for for discount. And yeah, it's fo- following fuck it up, uh New York City on Instagram. will give access to all the all the information that uh, people will need and me personally um, if if you follow me,
1: you can you'll I'll be posting about this all the time. So <laughs> beautiful. We'll link everything in the in the show notes for today so people can go get their tickets. And is the show usually at the Soho Playhouse or does it move around? It's
2: been there for a few months. so it started out at the duplex in the village and um, now it's at Soho Playhouse we um we're we're assessing you know we're still building but at the moment it's at Soho Playhouse so that uh, we aim for once a month
1: beautiful thank you so much Natsu for coming on the show and I am really grateful that we got to to chat today and I'm it was just so so lovely learning more about you Thank you so much for having me and for asking all those
2: very insightful questions. <laughs> really dug in deep there. Like I went all the
1: way back. <laughs> Thank you. I really appreciate it. Um, best compliment ever. Uh, and if you're listening to this show, please, please never forget that your voice matters and your story matters. And we'll see you on the next episode of the Amplify Her podcast. Bye everyone.
0: The Amplify Her podcast is a part of the Amplify Her Media Network. You can check out more shows on the Amplify Her Media Network over on Instagram at Amplify Her Media.